Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Emily, how was your week or weeks? Because it's been a couple, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been a while since we did this. It's been up and down. As you know, every time that I feel good, I think that I'm fixed. And then it always comes as a surprise to me when I realise I'm not actually fixed and I still have all of these symptoms and it still gets rough and rubbish. So I definitely think that I am having longer periods of feeling okay. I think I had a two-week period where I felt okay. And then I think I had a dip and I think I had a one-week period where I felt okay. I think the good periods are definitely getting longer. And if I compare myself to this time last year, I think the difference is huge. So people, I just want everyone to know that there is hope. You can begin to feel a little bit better. I don't know if this is forever. And obviously, I still have to be really careful managing my energy. And I think the better I feel, the more I overdo it. Um, but incrementally, I'm I'm doing okay. That's fantastic. And for our listeners, what are you on that you weren't on last year? What are you taking? I think the big difference for me, and bearing in mind that I did the antihistamine therapy for nine months, and I've done every single supplement and whatever that is recommended for long COVID, and don't forget Wim Hof. And I've done all of my Wim Hof breathing and I do meditating and I do yoga and I do all of these things. I think the thing that has made a difference for me is the introduction of progesterone and oestrogen. And I really think that eight weeks into the progesterone, it was actually you that pointed out that I was possibly turning a corner. And once I then introduced the oestrogen after that, I think that this past two months when I've had the combination of them, I think that's seen a marked improvement. Now, I'm not saying that all of my symptoms are because I'm perimenopausal. And I can categorically tell you that the changes in my cycle and my hormones directly correlate with my COVID. But I am really, really excited to see it something that's making a difference that's fantastic and if you want any more information on that do go back to our episode 31 i think it is uh, where we speak to sarah glenn about hormone replacement therapy and, and the connection with long covid i did want to draw that out of you because i think it's important and i think i've seen a marked difference in you since you started taking the introduction of the hormones yeah I, I'm going to try them next, I think. I'll, I'll make an appointment to see Sarah. I'm really interested to try testosterone as well, because I know that my testosterone levels are, are through the floor um, and that I haven't introduced yet. Because my method this year as well has very much been trying to do one thing at a time, introduce one thing, introduce the next thing, and really allow a decent length of time to see what has an effect. And I think for me, stopping the antihistamines completely has really, really cleared my brain and enabled me to be much sharper and have a clarity that I didn't have whilst I was on the antihistamines. And so I came off everything and then just introduced these things one at a time. That's a really good way to try and see what does help and what doesn't. Yeah, because otherwise we have a tendency, we're given all this advice and then you just buy this supplement, you take this thing, you get given these medications. And before you know it, I was taking 13 different things a night 
And I had no idea what was making any difference. Nothing was really. So how was your week? Well, I've had a really dodgy couple of weeks. I haven't been feeling well. I'd say it's almost three weeks now. I've been feeling increasingly breathless, super tachycardic, can't do much. I mean, I'm not bed bound. I'm, I'm just my normal stuff that I could do even on my kind of long COVID baseline had slipped significantly. I think it was a virus, but I wasn't really super sick with it. It was just a bit of a irritation, slight temperature. It wasn't COVID. So, you know, when I'm feeling like this, I, I generally know I'm hitting a crash or a dip and it's just you try and ride it through. And then this week, really been feeling increasingly unwell. And then Monday night, I had a funny turn. That's the only way I can describe it. Went to sleep, woke up about an hour later. I went to go to the bathroom and it was like a thousand camera flashes in my eyes, both my eyes going off all at once. And that lasted pretty much all night. I kind of just went back to bed. I tried to, because it was okay when I closed my eyes. And I just thought, okay, well, this is not good. And then when I woke up in the morning, I Googled it, <laughs> which is always not a good idea. I don't suffer from migraines. <laughs> so it wasn't a migraine. But the other option was a transient ischemic attack, which is basically like a mini stroke. Yeah, TIA. TIAs. So I emailed one of our former uh, contributors. Uh, Dr. Hadi Manji and said, I've had this thing happen. What do you suggest? He said, you should go to A&E. So I did. 12 hours I was in in St. George's A&E. My question every hour was, should I leave? Should I leave? This is a waste of time. Ultimately, uh, I was told I wouldn't get an MRI because they don't do them in A&E. Took my bloods, gave me a chest x-ray, which was quite bizarre. I think that's because I was feeling breathless. And did a CT, didn't show anything. And then I spent four hours at the eye part of the emergency department waiting to have my eyes tested. My eyes were fine. And then, miracle, come hour 12, I got this great young neurologist who came down, did a full workup. He says, I've come down because you sound interesting. Um, He did notice some neurological issues, was concerned because sometimes my heart rhythm is not great. And that's a leading cause of stroke. Said he didn't think it was one because all my, I could still touch my nose with my finger and walk forwards and backwards, you know, that drunk test that they do. Mm. The long and the short of it is that he referred me to my local TIA clinic and miracle upon miracle, the TIA clinic, the next morning at 10 o'clock called me and had me in and I got an MRI that day and I went back the next morning and I do have some small damage to the brain, but that could have been old. Mm. The neurologist said, you know, you're quite lucky you don't have the COVID brain. Which is something that's worried you since you started reading about it. Yeah. So I'm now on high-dose aspirin. They didn't give me any other anticoagulants because they're not quite sure whether it was a TIA. So I've been referred back to my cardiologist to see if my AFib is actually prolonged or if I need to do anticoagulants long term. Okay. So it's a little bit inconclusive at this point. But at the same time, it's a kind of good news story in terms of, okay, let's ignore the 12 hours. But in terms of actually managing to get an appropriate neurologist to assess you, to get the referral, to get the MRI, people fight a long time to get these things. Yeah. And for me, honestly, Emily, we know now how to talk to the medical profession. So I felt like I was able to advocate for myself without sounding too arsy. Yeah. 
I didn't want to put anyone's backs up because that's always counterproductive. Yeah, but when you're in that place and feeling rough, it's really difficult to maintain your cool. Yeah. And to advocate diplomatically for yourself. Yeah. You know, I thought they listened. I thought they did good checks on me. I felt like I was in good hands. And honestly, with the NHS, it really is potluck. Yeah. If you're just seeing the right person at the right time, who's got the right level of experience, because we are complicated. And who's got the time to take on your case. Yeah. I think the mistake that we make as a cohort or a group of sufferers is that all the doctors are up to speed with all the research. Yeah. They're not. They're not. That assumption that because it dominates our life, it's dominating the lives of these medical professionals. They've got a massive backlog, a massive crush already just of people, non-non-COVID patients, yeah. who they're trying to deal with. And they must be exhausted. I don't have any illusions that everybody I come across in this profession is going to know about non-COVID. Or even listen to my view about the research that I've read. Because how many people do you think go into the A&E and say, oh, look, I Googled this. <laughs> I've got so-and-so. Yeah. They must hear it a lot. Anyway, that was my experience. And now, today, how are you feeling now? Are you are you on the up again yet, or are you still feeling awful? And This morning was the first day I kind of didn't wake up with a heavy head, but it came. So I'd obviously woken up feeling not too bad and then done a few things and then felt rubbish. But that was better than the last couple of days where I've just woken up feeling rubbish. Yeah. So, you know, you mark it in small increments, don't you? Yeah, I tend to wake up feeling absolutely shocking at the moment. Then it improves throughout the day. Yeah, by the end of the evening, I'm feeling okay. Yeah, yeah. Now let's talk about this week's guest. We have had a large number of people either with POTS or wondering if they have POTS asking us if we could do something on POTS. So so uh, we spoke to Dr. Satish Raj, and he's a professor of cardiac sciences and a heart rhythm doctor at the University of Calgary in Canada. He's currently doing a big study looking at autonomic dysfunction in long COVID. At the end of this interview, I think you'll have a greater understanding of what POTS is and whether you actually might have POTS or have something else. Yeah, uh, whether it's something that you actually need to go and have investigated. Why don't we start with the very basics? Both Emily and I have long COVID and we have very different symptoms, but POTS or autonomic dysfunction is something that seems to be almost universal amongst people who are suffering with long COVID. How would you describe or what are the symptoms of autonomic dysfunction? So the, the challenge with, with the term autonomic dysfunction is, is that it's a grab bag. And I would argue that's actually part of the problem with long COVID is a descriptor, right? It's, it's a good intake because you're saying something happened after COVID, but that something is actually not one thing. That something is very varied among patients. So the presentation, even among the two of you, you say is different. And, and certainly among a larger group can be vastly different where some have extensive lung problems and that's really driving their symptoms. And in other cases, that that's not the case. In, in the autonomic um, the, the challenge is that there's so many manifestations that may or may not be actually due to an underlying autonomic problem because the autonomic nervous system touches everything. Dr. Shiv Kumar at UCLA has often uh, related it to 5G technology. And, you know, people talk about the internet of things. In some ways, he argues the autonomic nervous system is the body's internet where it just connects everything back and forth. And, and so it becomes difficult when things aren't working properly if, if to figure out exactly where the problems are, if it's autonomic or not. 
In terms of pots, the key uh, hallmark features, uh, sort of the minimum requirement, if you will, is an excessive increase in heart rate on standing. Technically, this has to occur in the absence of orthostatic hypotension, but the key manifestation that that people feel is, is that they're unwell when upright. So there's a strong positional driver to the symptoms. And is it when changing position, so when moving to upright, or is it constant when you're upright? No, that's a good question. So the patients may have issues when changing position, but that's actually something else. And we can touch on that as well. But for POTS, it's actually more of a sustained upright posture. So when you've been sometimes even sitting, but certainly standing for several minutes, it it doesn't tend to happen when you change position and get better. It tends to get worse as you're standing. Uh, because the heart rate will often keep going up or certainly not usually go down. So the typical description of that is uh, perhaps uh, you're trying to cook something in the kitchen, and that's an activity that often involves standing in a position for several minutes. Yeah. Um, so that's one manifestation of that or related symptom is uh, fairly profound exercise intolerance. And, and, and I hesitate to say that because that's due to so many things. But in the case of POTS, one of the issues is that the heart rate may climb really fast in response to mundane activities of daily living, right? So when I'm saying exertion, I'm not talking about running a 5k, I'm talking about going to the bathroom or walking from, you know, the bedroom to the kitchen. Upstairs. You said at one point, even standing during the washing up, you were having the symptoms. And then uh, patients with this, there are different hemodynamics underlying it. um, But one of the things that's that's common in, in patients with POTS and other disorders of regulation of heart rate, blood pressure, people that are prone to faint, people with orthostatic hypotension, is that um, heat tends to make things worse. We live in Calgary. Thankfully, uh, there's still snow on the ground. Uh, we had a good storm a couple of days ago. For some patients, that's good. For some, it's not. But, you know, Caribbean vacations don't you aren't usually well tolerated in this population. I've just actually learned that because I just came back from the Maldives and I there was really quite unwell. Absolutely. And showers, the manifestation day to day is people have trouble with showers. Um, and that's a combination of you're standing for several minutes usually, and people don't like cold showers. It's usually an environment that's hotter. Um, and so patients will often describe being more symptomatic than and either having to really take short showers or one of the strategies is to have a bench or a stool in the shower so they're not as vertical. So interesting. I had never heard previously the heat element of that because one of the people that we've spoken to Robin McNellis was talking about how his heart rate would go crazy when he was showering but I I think that we talked about how it's because you raise your hands above your head to to wash your hair we thought it was that postural thing I hadn't factored in the heat in that I think it's a combination it's a series of additive stresses there's the heat there's the standing for a prolonged period of time and you're right uh, you know activities above your head, churn the cardiac output and stress the system a little bit more. These orthostatic symptoms are really the key symptoms. And, and usually if you're measuring your heart rate, the heart rate's going up excessively with that. So for, for POTS, the, the heart rate criteria in adult patients, patients above 20 anyway, is an increase of, of more than 30 beats a minute from lying to standing within 10 minutes. If it just goes up in the beginning when you first change positions and then falls back down, that's not POTS. That's actually probably a different disorder that we are seeing in our study where we're looking at autonomic testing in long COVID that have something called initial orthostatic hypotension. When we think of orthostatic hypotension, the language just means the blood pressure drops when we stand up. But usually when we say orthostatic hypotension, we're thinking of older patients, often with multiple comorbidities, often with autonomic neuropathies, where they stand up and their blood pressure is falling because their autonomic nervous system doesn't work. 
But initial orthostatic hypotension is actually something that I suspect that almost everyone has experienced occasionally. A few times where you got up quickly and you just sort of suddenly felt lightheaded, but for such a short period of time, you might not even call it that, where you just hold on to something and in a few seconds it passes, you get on with your activity, you get on with your day, you don't never think about it again. To some extent, it's physiology. We think it's due to a, a muscle activation response involving the thigh muscles, realistically the largest muscle group that you can activate when it's been quiet for a while. It's an initial muscle activation response that causes a transient drop in your vascular resistance. And when you stand up, fluid shifts obviously from your chest to below your chest because of gravity. And you get this transient blood pressure drop and it happens right away. It happens, has to happen within 15 seconds by definition, often five seconds, six seconds. And it recovers really quickly too. It recovers by definition under 45 seconds. It could be a lot less than that. Yeah. And if it happens once every few months or once every few years, uh, who cares? It usually isn't devastating. You move on with your life and, and you don't think about it. But if it happens every day, if it happens several times a day, and if it happens where it's severe enough that you don't just feel a little off, but you feel really lightheaded, or you feel like you're about to faint, or you do faint, in some cases they do, then that becomes more of a problem. And that's, I think, what you're describing. And, and with that, while we focus on the hypotension, what we're seeing, and, and you know, not surprisingly, is that um, a reasonable number of people get a reflex increase in heart rate. So in response to that drop in pressure, the heart rate goes up on a slight time lag because it happens after the drop in pressure. I think that's why we'll sometimes get when we have patients measure orthostatic heart rate and blood pressure as part of the assessment, one minute the heart rate's really high and then it comes down. It's the reflex response to this drop in pressure that then recovers fairly quickly. Now, some patients can have that and a POTS-like presentation, the orthostatic tachycardia with symptoms, but some don't. Once they're upright and stabilized, then they're okay. The POTS patient doesn't get upright and stabilized and okay. As the longer they're upright, usually the symptoms persist or get worse. In addition to the heart rate, the other symptoms that it causes are dizziness. And what are the, the other sort of things that come from that? And is it all related to the heart rate? Yes and no. Broadly speaking, probably not. So let me just take a step back. So you've made a critical point, and that is that orthostatic tachycardia or postural orthostatic tachycardia, POT, if you will, is about heart rate and blood pressure, right? That's physiology. But the S in POTS is for syndrome. So if you just have a big heart rate change when you stand up, you don't have POTS. POTS describes a group that has that, but that's not sufficient. They suffer from symptoms of orthostatic intolerance. When they're upright, they feel worse and they feel better when they lie down. And the typical symptoms that one might describe, and not everyone describes everything the same way, is some combination of lightheadedness, maybe fainting, but, but feeling like fainting. They may have palpitation. They may be aware of their heart racing. They may get short of breath, driven by the high heart rate. Occasionally, people will have chest pain. Well, occasionally, maybe more than occasionally. It's not a typical netter description of the man having a heart attack. It can vary. It can be sharp and jabby. It can be tight. There's a variable description, but chest pain can fit into that as well. And interestingly, sometimes nausea gets worse. A lot of patients in any body position describe there's a subjective cognitive issue, right? That patients will often describe as brain fog. And that actually does seem to have a positional component. So people with this will say that they think more poorly when they're on their feet than when they're not. If they can do something sitting or lying down, they can think of it better than when they're standing and having to do that as well. So there are, there are a bunch of symptoms that, uh, that 
are positional, that can get better, that are probably cardiovascular. But if you look at POTS patients in general, and, and, and some of these data come from a study that we colloquially call the Big POTS Survey, but it's basically a large patient survey that we've done in partnership with Dysautonomy International um, and with ethics through Vanderbilt University, where I was before coming to Calgary. Mm. We had a laundry list of symptoms and asked patients what they had. And so some of the really common ones are the things we talked about, which you'd expect in a disorder with tachycardia. But very common symptoms also included, as I mentioned, the cognitive impairment. Um, Over 90% described headaches. So headaches, very, very common. Uh, 100% of patients, or very close to 100%, are chronically fatigued. And that's actually a a fairly uh, dominant and disabling symptom. Um, Exercise intolerance uh, early on, and I suspect post-exertional malaise is, again, universal is too strong, but a very, very common presentation. And then you get into stuff that's a little less common, but still pretty common. A lot of people describe GI issues, and I would actually break GI down into two different types. There's the lower GI stuff, the uh, constipation, diarrhea, symptoms that are similar to irritable bowel syndrome. And it varies, right? So some people are profoundly affected by that. Some are less affected by that. Some have a lot of pain. And that's very common. The more, I think, disabling ones are a minority of patients that actually have what sound more like stomach issues, issues where when they eat, they have trouble keeping things down. They get very nauseated, lots of vomiting, where we wonder if there's a motility problem in the stomach. Truthfully, I have trouble blaming the heart or the heart rate for some of those symptoms. I'm just speaking to what travels together, right? So there are clearly sort of manifestations of this that that aren't primarily cardiac. Then there's the company that it keeps, right? So a significant minority, probably about 30% of, of POTS patients in different studies now um, have a co-diagnosis or seem to meet criteria for something along the spectrum of joint hypermobility syndrome or the hypermobile form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Exactly why that is isn't clear. The association is clear. The, the reasons for the association aren't clear. What's cause, what's effect. These are still questions that people are trying to understand and answer. And then there's another diagnosis that is seen maybe in 20%, maybe a little less of the POTS patients, uh, is something that's often referred to as a mast cell activation disorder. Mm-hmm. And, and the truth is, I find the diagnosis troubling because you know, even in the allergy community, there seems to be a lot of disagreement as to exactly how to diagnose it. But I think if we step away from the specifics of it requires this or requires that, I think Morally, what it does encompass is that there's a subgroup of patients that have a strong allergic component to their symptomatology. These are people often with multiple food sensitivities where they can get quite sick with that. These are people that tend to you know, have a lot of skin manifestations, allergic skin manifestations. They get rashes easily, dermatographism, things like that. Things suggesting that there's something haywire-ish in the immune system that is active. And I'm not sure if all of those people have the same thing. <laughs> wrong because the manifestations, the presentations can be be different, but there's definitely a subgroup that has that behavior. And this is sort of the, the POTS in general. I don't know if I've gone too far off the track of what you're asking. <laughs> no, you seem to have described long COVID in kind of in all its manifestations. That's exactly what I was thinking though. Is there anything of long COVID that doesn't fit into your category? Yeah, I think I think there there, there probably is. I see a skewed proportion of the long COVID patients because the patients that typically would come to see me often have a strong orthostatic component. And I'm not sure that's true of everyone. I think some patients we have in Calgary, the very first long COVID clinics were actually set up by pulmonary medicine. So it was the lung doctors 
that actually set up the clinics. And I think that stemmed from the fact that the earliest waves of COVID were really bad pneumonias. They really were sort of lung injury, lower lung infections, which is, I think, why we had a lot of issues with intensive care unit stays that were prolonged because of the lung damage. So I don't think that's as common in POTS. In fact, one of the challenges I would argue is that there are so many different presentations people talk about with long COVID. So one is sort of lung and lung scarring issues where that's the dominant issue. Um, Clearly, there seems to be a hypercoagulable state with COVID with some people with different types of clotting presentations, be it systemic early on. I know there's a big concern about strokes. It fortunately wasn't quite as bad, I think, as people or not as common. Obviously, if you had it, it doesn't matter how uncommon it is. It's really bad, but it wasn't as common, I think, as people were concerned about. But there's still a concern about smaller level clots and clots that may affect the lung, things like that. There are issues with myocarditis in some, so inflammation in the heart itself that can leave, leave you with scarring. These are things that we don't tend to see as, as much in sort of the more typical POTS presentations, right? So I think there's, there's a lot of, of variability. Do you think we might be able to separate it out into those people who had actually scarring of the lung or the heart from a very severe acute phase? And then this huge cohort of people who don't necessarily have those physical markers or scars, but have all of the things that you describe. Perhaps the severity of COVID is always a difficult thing to pin down because I think what a threshold a lot of people were using was hospitalization. Some people were pretty sick that didn't go to hospital because the hospitalization pretty much meant you needed oxygen. At least locally, that's sort of what it came down to is that if you're, you were really hypoxic, you needed to hospitalize you, we, we did that. And otherwise you toughed it out at home and felt miserable for a while and, and hopefully got better. Um, and a lot of people did, and, and and unfortunately, some were left with residual symptoms. So there's a spectrum, and and yeah, I think that the, the challenge with what a lot a lot of what I'm seeing in our long COVID study in our clinic is that for the most part, as you say, these are the patients that had mild COVID, and and by mild, I just mean that they weren't hospitalized. Non-hospitalized COVID may be the better term. We come across a lot of people who had mild COVID in the in the way that you would understand it as a layperson, in the in that you had a couple of days of feeling unwell and then were better again. And then your long COVID symptoms presented weeks later. Yeah. So that's the challenge. Now, in terms of, is this, is this all POTS or POTS-like? I mean, even pre-COVID, there's an issue where orthostatic intolerance is this big universe and POTS requires the hemodynamics as well. As I mentioned, the hemodynamics aren't sufficient for a diagnosis of POTS. If you just have a high heart rate on standing, you could say, well, why would we even see them? These patients, you know, if they're asymptomatic, how do they know? And, and the answer to how do they know is the Apple Watch. There's so many wearable technologies now that people that are asymptomatic pick up lots of things that they decide aren't deemed to be normal, right? And, and, yeah. and want to get checked out. And I think it's it's important, you know, information is good as long as you do good things with it. And I think the important thing is not to medicalize them and give them a diagnosis if they're otherwise well. You want to restrict a diagnosis like POTS where you you think that more needs to be done to people that you, either you think there's a problem with the heart rate in of itself, and that's not usually the case, but that heart rate and the other symptoms are causing the patients to feel unwell and you want to see if you can make them feel less unwell. Uh, you've been looking and researching POTS for pre-COVID. So before COVID arrived, have you seen an increase in the number of people presenting with POTS-like symptoms? I will hesitantly say, yeah. I'll tell you the challenge with POTS clinics is that uh, 
when we say see, uh, you know, what we see is that our waiting list gets longer. The truth is that most clinics have really long waiting lists because there's just not enough capacity. Yeah. And your report said that you already didn't have capacity for the number of people before. This isn't a new thing. Yeah. But, I mean, before waiting lists and autonomic clinics in the States. So let's talk about a place that is big and actually has a lot of healthcare. We don't want to get into, you know, issues of slogging off the Canadian healthcare system or NHS, which may be another podcast. Um, but <laughs> even in, in the autonomic clinics in the US, and, and there are some at least, there aren't enough, right? Most of them have waiting lists of a year. Um, but are there more patients? Absolutely. Why that is, is less clear. You, know, you can certainly make an argument that there's something about COVID. And if you needed me to sort of map a way that that could be true, ACE2 has gotten a lot more attention, I must say, post-COVID than it ever did before. It was sort of the forgotten ACE, if you will, but all of a sudden it's the sexy ACE. <laughs> It does play a role in, you know, in the renin angiotensin system. It plays a role in uh, critical parts of the brain involved in sympathetic nervous system outflow and traffic. So you can make an argument that there may be something directly targeted from COVID. I truly believe that that's probably not true. I actually think that the issue is probably a more nonspecific viral issue. I don't have data to prove this, this is my sense is that pre-COVID, a significant minority of patients with POTS. So in the POTS survey, we asked, did something happen in, I think it was a three-month window, three months before the onset of your symptoms that could have been a triggering event? And the most common answer was no. But of the people that said yes, the most common was a viral infection, right? I got sick and I just never got better. So that's existed before COVID. And I think it's more likely we're seeing a version of that. And the difference with COVID is because of its dramatic presentation in the beginning and, uh, you know, the, its effect on society, the hospitals, non-hospital society more broadly, everyone is paying attention. Um, we're not doing it as aggressively now as maybe we should, but there was actually testing for the virus. You could name, when you felt unwell, you could actually go and see if it had a name, COVID, as opposed to not. And so there are a lot of people that actually can say, I had COVID and this happened, as opposed to... I didn't feel good in February and a few weeks later, I felt unwell. And you may not even relate it that way, right? Unless that viral infection was really, really bad, you might not think that this is related. So I think there's been a lot of virus, right? COVID's affected a lot of people in the world and that, that virus has a name. So we're able to pin a label on it. And a lot of people are going, hey, I had that same thing. I think that's the issue. I think it's it's very similar though, I suspect to what happened before in a less concentrated way. But I think there has there has there been more? Absolutely. There are a lot of, I think there are a lot of patients that are unwell. And, and a lot of the challenges that we started hearing several months or a year in from patients with long COVID in different countries, in Canada, in the States, I suspect the same in England. In fact, I know it is from Twitter that a lot of the challenges are the same, right? It's difficult, especially when you have an illness with multi-system manifestation, it's difficult to navigate the healthcare system and figure out who the right people to see are and figure out what to do. And in some cases, that's because no one knows what to do. In some cases, it's, it's, it's difficult to put your finger on the problem. And some cases, it's, it's just because the healthcare system hasn't really been optimally designed for that. And those challenges, while entirely true, that, I've been, you know, that you've heard from different long COVID patients or advocates, are things that I think were also entirely true before COVID. For patients with these multi-system illnesses, it was often difficult to sort of tap into and navigate those resources. 
talking about multifaceted disease and people not knowing how to treat it um, I think that the next question leading on from that then is if you here are an expert in a essentially multifaceted syndrome is there a treatment do you have a treatment strategy for POTS? Well for, for some of it the challenge is that uh, I'm a cardiologist I deal better with the cardiovascular symptoms and cardiovascular issues than with the other ones. So there's a, a cardiologist at uh, King's College Hospital in London named uh, Nicholas Gall, who sees a lot of POTS patients as part of his practice in, in London. And you know, when I hear him talk, he has a very practical approach to this. We were both at a meeting in uh, Copenhagen of heart rhythm specialists uh, talking about POTS. And I think he made a, a really prescient point, which is, you know, don't be scared to look after patients with POTS because you don't know how to manage all of these things that they have. The challenge is we weren't necessarily trained to deal with all those things. What he's been able to do successfully, quite frankly, probably more successfully than I have been able to do locally, is, uh, as he put it, find a bunch of friends down the hall that have the different specialty expertise in the different areas that he can send patients to. Yeah, so you end up with an MDT. Maybe not formally, but at least an informal, you end up with an informal team and different people dealing with different aspects of it. And one of the challenges with a diagnosis like POTS is that it is obviously daunting for the patient, but it can be daunting for physicians. And you know, one of the challenges that we have is sometimes once a patient is diagnosed with POTS, physicians in, in different specialties seem to want to blame every symptom or issue they have on their POTS saying, just get the POTS treated and this will, that'll take care of it. And you know, I try and point out POTS doesn't cause anything. POTS is an end phenotype. There are different ways of getting there. And obviously you want to, if you can figure that out, you want to try and deal with the underlying issue. And that's a challenge and a source of ongoing work. One that we don't have lots of answers to for most people. But at this point in time, if you have headaches, if you have migraines and POTS, treat the migraines. What I'm going to do for your POTS may help your headaches. Chances are it won't. My treatments are really largely cardiovascular targeted. If you have issues with gastroparesis, really we need to invoke the expertise of, of the people that deal with GI motility issues to see if their strategies can help. It's not really usually a magic bullet type treatment approach. My wife is actually British. And, and so she would tell me about when growing up, there were commercials from Tesco where the punchline was every little helps. And I actually think that's the motto that should be used when trying to treat a patient with something like POTS. I think the mistake that's made by doctors and quite frankly by patients sometimes is that they throw away drugs because they didn't work adequately. And not work adequately and not working at all are two different things. If a drug's causing horrible side effects, then, then obviously stop it. But I think it's a mistake to sort of discard drug A because it didn't do everything and then go to drug B. Because for the most part in this field, there's not, when you hit drug C or drug D, it's unlikely that it's going to be the holy water solution. So, but in terms of the, the actual treatments that we, we do use, it, to some extent, it, it's targeting the hemodynamics and what the issues are, and it varies a bit. So you could break the strategies down into things that expand blood volume. So a lot of POTS patients, and this is based on work that I did when I was at Vanderbilt and was very interested in blood volume regulation, about 70% of the POTS patients that we saw and formally assessed their blood volume, and that involves nuclear medicine tests, had low blood volume. And so that becomes one of the things to address that we tried to address, address in most people. If someone's heart rate is really, really high, so obviously everyone with POTS has an excessive increase in heart rate, but even with that, there are some people whose heart rates get up to 105 
when they're standing, which I think you'd agree is, is fast. And if their resting heart rate is 65, it, they've had an excessive increase. And there's some people when they stand up, they get their heart rate up to 140. So certainly if you're in the really, really high range, almost always slowing it down a little bit, not too much, but slowing it down a little bit can make a big difference in symptoms. I would liken this to if you're on a treadmill, for someone who's healthy, when they're on a treadmill, there's probably a heart rate that they could maintain and for some time. But if you get a little above that, above that threshold and you get to a heart rate that's a little fast for you, you have a few minutes. You have, you've sort of gone anaerobic and at that point you can't sustain that. And I think those numbers vary from individual to individual, but I think it's that type of analogy. A heart rate of 140 when you're standing is tough to sustain. If you can get it down to 120, still really fast, right? Still not normal, but it can make a big difference in symptoms. That's something that you are suggesting you have medication that you can treat. That's something you can implement. Yeah, there, there are medications that could help with that for sure. In some cases, absolutely. So in terms of the, what we do, I guess for our POTS patients, and so remember, this is the subgroup that has the excessive tachycardia in addition to the orthostatic symptoms and, and things like that, is we have a layer of non-pharmacological approaches that everyone is offered to start. And this consists of attempts to increase blood volume. And the whole argument about blood volume is that the blood volume is a means to get more blood back to the heart. Some of these strategies are actually targeting what I'd call cardiac venous return, the amount of blood that comes back to the heart that the heart is then able to pump out when it beats. And the reason for that is that the stroke volume, the amount of blood that pumps out when it beats, if it's low, and in most of our POTS patients, it is low. We've shown that, Mayo has shown that. Most studies that have looked at the physiology of this have found that to be low. If you think about it, if you need to maintain a certain cardiac output, if your body needs a certain amount of blood cycling through to perfuse and nourish the muscles and the other organs in a minute, and you can only deliver a little bit of blood each time your heart beats, the only way to get to that minute total is to increase the number of heartbeats. So part of our strategy is to see if we can increase the stroke volume, if we can increase the amount of blood the heart can beat every time, then you might not need to get your heart rate up quite as high just to maintain what you need to nourish the muscles and the other tissues. That's so interesting. I, don't, I didn't know about the blood volume, but I, I mean, I'm not a cardiac expert. So part of our approach for that is we actually get everyone on a lot of salt and water. So we increase their salt intake. We push water aggressively. So I try and get our patients to drink three liters of water minimum a day, which is probably more than they need, but it's safe. The whole idea is I want their kidneys to hold on to anything it wants to hold on to. I don't want there to be an issue of dehydration. And that most patients can do, some can't, right? And, and the ones that are particularly troubled in doing it are, remember I said, there's a subgroup of patients that have stomach issues mm. um, that just aren't, and, and that can sometimes be a problem. And then for salt, as a society, you know, the American Heart Association, the Heart and Stroke Foundation in Canada, I suspect the British Heart Foundation for decades have been telling people at a societal level to cut back on sodium intake. And really what they're trying to prevent is hypertension in middle age. But in our case, we're dealing with a different set of hemodynamics and we're trying to expand the blood volume. And so we are trying to get people to take more salt because the kidney holds on to fluid based on sodium gradient. So if the kidney holds on to more of the salt, it'll hold on to more of the water. And the truth is I want that fluid to go into the blood space. And I, I don't know how to do that. So the salt approach gets the fluid into you gets the fluid into the patient, and then the body equilibrates it. So if patients do this correctly, initially anyway, until equilibration changes occur, they may actually sort of retain some fluid in their tissues as well. So they may find their tissues a little more boggy. They may gain a bit of water weight, but the goal is to get some of that fluid into the blood space. 
and get more blood coming back to the heart. So that's part of it. We actually published a paper last year in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology from a study that had been done at Vanderbilt just before I left, actually, where we had patients with POTS and, and some healthy participants, control participants, for one week on a very low-sodium diet. And then a month or two later, the participants were all female, so they came in at the same phase of the menstrual cycle both times. We brought them back for a week on a very high-sodium diet, and we tested whether this theory works. The whole idea of SALT is we want to increase your blood volume, and we think that that lower blood volume actually drives the sympathetic nervous system which then drives the heart rate. That was the sort of the theory of why we did this. But in the study, we actually showed that happens. We did a bunch of tests at the end of the week, and we showed that the blood volume went up, especially the liquid part of blood, actually. The plasma space went up. By increasing salt intake. Yeah, with the high salt intake compared to low sodium intake. It's fascinating. And then not only did it increase the blood volume, but then um, we looked at the noradrenaline levels in the blood in the plasma, lying and standing. And the reason we do that is it's a biochemical measure of sympathetic nervous system activity. It's not a perfect measure. It's far from perfect measure, but it's a measure that is accessible. And we use it in clinics sometimes. And we do find that there's a significant number of POTS patients with high levels of norepinephrine, suggesting their sympathetic nervous system is revved up. In many cases like this, probably related to low blood volume. So it's a compensation mechanism. But that's excess in sympathetic nervous system tone can then drive the heart rate to go up. And so we were able to reverse some of that with the high sodium intake. Now, I want to be clear, it, that wasn't the whole story because the POTS patients on the high sodium diet physiologically looked a little more like the healthy subjects on a low sodium diet. We didn't normalize things by any means. It wasn't that you, if you give them salt, everything else is all better, but, it, but does it make a difference? Absolutely. It made a clear difference in their heart rates. And it actually, there's a strong trend to an improvement in symptoms on standing in these patients. That's part of our basic sort of almost mother's milk advice, if you will, the salt and water. And then we've gotten more aggressive about the use of compression garments. Again, there was another paper published uh, last year in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology work done here in Calgary, largely by a PhD student of mine named Kate Bourne. It was a proof of concept study. We used a, a segmental compression suit that was really ugly. It was made of neoprene and Velcro. Um, so not something that people would wear in the real world. But in our lab, we were able to compress in different ways. We were able to do full compression from the abdomen down to the legs. We were able to do no compression without it. But we we're also able to do abdomen thigh compression, sort of a bicycle shorts compression versus a leg-only compression. So the compression socks that someone might wear if they're standing for a long period of time or going on flights and things like that. And patients went through four different tilt tests in one morning, in one in each configuration. And we showed really nicely, um, actually, better than I dreamed, two things. One is that uh, the compression decreased the heart rates during tilt. So while lying down, compression, no compression, not a big difference in heart rate. But when you tilted people up and their heart rates went up, it went up with the compression, but less so than without the compression. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was that when we looked at all four, when we looked at the full abdomen, pelvis area, legs, no compression, there was a dose response where the leg only compression was close to nothing. It provided a little bit of benefit, but not a lot. The abdomen only compression provided most of the benefit, but there was a little extra with the legs. So the full compression was a little bit. We actually had gradations of compression and gradations of effect on the heart rate. And 
perhaps most importantly, gradations on effect on symptoms. So we used a tool that we call the Vanderbilt Orthostatic Symptom Score. It's a simple rating of nine symptoms on a zero to 10 scale. So you, when someone's tilted uh, or at the end of the tilt, we can quickly ask them to rate these symptoms and their symptom burden went down the more compression they had. Can you explain what is that compression doing? How is that compression changing the heart rate? One of the key hemodynamic issues, one of the key problems when you look at sort of the blood flow issue in POTS patients is that multiple studies show that the stroke volume, the amount of blood that's pumped with every beat is low. And we thought the salt and water strategy, the expansion of blood volume strategy is designed to increase the amount so that it can pump out more and increase the stroke volume. This is another uh, approach looking at the same thing. So before we get to what the compression does, I guess what happens when we stand up is, is the first question. And what happens when any of us stand up, POTS, no POTS, long COVID, no long COVID, is that when we stand up, gravity affects us in, you know, differently standing than lying down. And one of the things that happens is fluid shifts from up to down, not rocket science, um, but from the thorax, from the chest where the heart is to below the chest, including into the legs. But that's where the whole issue of using compression socks and things come up is to prevent the blood from pooling in the legs. I think the mistake that most people make though, is thinking that that's where the fluid goes and a little bit goes there, but there's nice data using a segmental bioelectrical impedance where you can actually look at fluid shifts based on electrical resistances in different parts of the body that suggest that most of the fluid does not go to your calves, right? If you think about it, most people's calves aren't that big. They can't put that much fluid in there before it gets full. A little more fluid goes to the thighs than the calves because there's there's just more space there. But again, the majority, I'd say somewhere in the order of 70 to 80% of the fluid that shifts away from the thorax shifts into the abdomen and pelvis because you have lots of veins and less pressure and space. So the veins can enlarge there. They're very compliant. They're basically can act as a reservoir for that fluid. But that fluid is not going back to the heart then on standing. And so the goal of this compression and abdominal compression in particular is to decrease the amount of fluid that shifts down. It doesn't get rid of it altogether. I don't want to make it sound like it reverses it. It doesn't, but you know, it decreases the amount of fluid that can sit there because you're putting external pressure on the belly and on those veins. The idea is that more blood goes back to the heart. And in fact, we showed that. I gave you the top line data in terms of the heart rate and symptoms. We actually looked at some of the hemodynamic parameters and we showed that the stroke volume goes up. So the cardiac output didn't go up too much because the stroke volume went up and the heart rate went down. And the two of them together make up the amount of blood that circulates every minute. But that was the goal. The goal wasn't to increase the cardiac output. The goal was to see if we could blunt the heart rate. And that's, that's what happened. But then it reverses once you remove the compression. I, we believe so, right? Because in our study, we crossed over and the changes occurred and unoccurred quickly, right? So, and, and obviously, you know, that neoprene and Velcro suit is not something that anyone uh, with any self-respect would wear <laughs> outside the lab, but there are compression garments that are available. We're fairly aggressive about using that. The truth is there's not really good data on these commercial garments, but that's Kate's current study is actually where we're doing a study in people's homes. We're sending monitors and protocols to people's homes where they already have garments that fit them to see if it makes a difference. We're looking at two different types of garments. So one are pantyhose style garments, and, and certainly there are medical grade stockings that can be prescribed that are really tight, and they're a pain in the butt. And I mean that 
both literally and metaphorically, right? They're difficult <laughs> to get on. They tend to be tight and uncomfortable. And I tell patients if they're comfortable, you got the wrong kind because for it to work, they really need to be tight. It's a by definition thing. More and more, I've gone to trying to use commercial grade stockings. So if you go to a sporting goods store, the tights that triathletes wear or runners wear provide compression. The high-end ones will actually give you a compression rating. It's less than what we can prescribe medically, but it can still be effective. And the advantages that they have, especially in our younger patients, are that one, they're more comfortable, but they're more fashionable because they're designed to be seen. The medical grade stockings, let's face it, they're the type of garments that your grandmother would be ashamed to be seen in, right? Let alone you know, a 20-year-old <laughs> young woman. What is going on in normal people then that don't need this compression? Their blood vessels can constrict, right? So to keep the blood pressure up. It may be a combination of things. It may be that the constriction may be better. It may be that their volume is better. When we've done blood volume studies, the blood volumes tends to be higher in the control subjects. So it may be that the POTS patients are just closer to the critical threshold. The, the other people, their tank's more full. If you're asking, is, is the fundamental problem one of venous compliance, that these patients have more compliant veins? The truth is we don't know that. That's actually a very difficult thing to quantify and measure. So I, I don't know if it's the issue of that's the underlying problem or if this is just a way of trying to mitigate the other problem, which is there's just less blood coming back for other reasons. And this is a way of, of squishing some of it back. Just in terms of practical tips, uh, the one thing I, I should mention is that the tights are a problem in hot weather as well. So we're studying it, but based on no published evidence, body shaping garments, so things like Spanx where we get people to focus just on sort of the upper thigh of the rib cage is the uh, backup plan. But again, all of these things are far from perfect solutions, right? They're all uncomfortable to varying degrees. Whether people do them or not all depends on how much benefit they perceive. Yeah. So it's that balance, isn't it? Yeah. Patients, when they come to see me, I think often they'll give me the benefit of the doubt and they'll try it. If they find it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not helping and it's a nuisance, they're not going to keep doing it. All I can really get them to do is give it a chance. And then it depends on if they perceive benefit or not. If we look at the theory of long COVID, I'm not talking about POTS generally, but long COVID as being an inflammatory situation mm -hmm. throughout the body, that would suggest that you have inflammation of the um, vein. Well, it could be veins. It could be nerves. Because personally, I feel like all my blood vessels feel dilated. I can feel them and I can see them in, at times. Would yeah. that more dilated blood vessels cause that blood volume to appear lower or feel lower? So the blood volume, if you measure it quantitatively, it shouldn't, okay. right? It, but so let's say you had either the problem in the veins or there's a nerve problem where you're not squishing the veins as adequately. Yeah. Um, could, that could that lead to a presentation like this? It probably could. Here's another, probably more of a long COVID related question. The disease or the syndrome that we have is relapsing and remitting. Are we then still classified as POTS patients? Because I get my symptoms quite severely and then they'll go away. So for me, I don't know if I have POTS, but if I go up the stairs, my heart rate will go to 150. My resting heart rate is about 59. So I have a massive leap, but it's not constantly like that. POTS criteria aren't done with exertion because it's harder to quantify that. And with exertion, everyone's heart rate is supposed to go up. So we're arguing whether it goes up at an inappropriate level. Yeah. The POTS criteria are really based on standing without much other exertion, right? So really it's gravity without the exertion. 
But to the broader question, so I will say in POTS patients, I think there are good days and bad days and there are phases where people are better or worse, but it's not as um, rare or ephemeral. Like usually people have symptoms pretty much every day and, and sometimes every time they stand up. But if the question is, if you meet POTS heart rate criteria today and next week and the week after, but then a month from now you go and you don't meet POTS heart rate criteria and then two months you do, does your diagnosis change from day to day based on meeting the criteria that day? I, I would say no. If you've clearly met the criteria for POTS, we recognize that heart rate increases, certainly in response to just standing, vary, right? It varies a little from day to day, can vary with your hydration status. We've actually published data years ago that there's diurnal variability. So the heart rate increase on standing, in fact, the heart rate on standing is higher first thing in the morning than later in the morning or certainly in the afternoon or evening. Within a day, it varies, let alone day to day with other stuff that's going on. Have you ever heard of anyone's heart rate going a bit loopy after eating? By loopy, do you mean the heart rate going up? Yes, considerably. It's not the most common complaint I hear, but is it possible? Absolutely. And, and the reason is because we know that there are patients that have postprandial hypotension. So there are patients that drop their pressure after eating. There's a lot of physiology that occurs, some of it related to fluid shifts. So fluids going more into the splanchnic, into the gut circulation to deal with the food. Some of it actually probably dealing with insulin and some of the glucose uh, like peptides. There's actually a very nice paper recently published by a former colleague at Vanderbilt, uh, Cynthia Chabau, looking at the effects of eating in POTS related to these incretins, these substances that affect insulin sensitization and glucose regulation. So I think food does make a difference. I've had POTS patients clearly describe that they actually do better on a low-carb diet. And it's well recognized that high carb diets tend to lead to bigger drops in pressure in those patients prone to postprandial hypotension. It's entirely true, I believe, that some patients have celiac disease. And I think it's true that some are gluten insensitive. But I actually suspect that many patients that are gluten insensitive may be carbohydrate insensitive. And the issue is that a lot of the gluten rich foods are fairly carbohydrate rich and it causes symptoms but not necessarily symptoms related to celiac disease, you know, that specific pathology. So maybe the same foods causing the problems, perhaps for a different reason. Okay. Interesting. You are currently studying the, you're trying to understand the underlying pathophysiology of long COVID pot. Um, how far into your study are, are you at the moment? Yeah. So right now for pots, we've done different things, but for COVID, we're actually not trying to study yet sort of the long COVID POTS, we're actually taking a step back and, and saying, how are we able to measure autonomic abnormalities, clinical autonomic abnormalities and others in long COVID patients? So we actually have a study where we're taking all comers with ongoing symptoms three months or more after a PCR diagnosed COVID and running them through a small battery of autonomic tests. The most important thing, I think, is to try and see how common are these disorders. And we are right now, we were hoping to start in the fall. We actually got started right at the beginning of January, but I've had a graduate student working on this very hard, and we've probably studied 50 to 60 patients already. What I'd say is that orthostatic hypotension is very uncommon. We've seen that in one patient. Interestingly, resting sinus tachycardia in the group that we've seen is pretty uncommon, although that's been described a little more in other groups. In a, in a Swedish group, they describe more. POTS was seen only in a minority of patients. I'd say, I think it was about 35. I mean, the data is still being collected, but in the range of 35 or 40%. And by POTS, what I mean is the hemodynamic criteria for POTS, so the excess of orthostatic tachycardia. The most common finding actually was this initial orthostatic hypotension that we talked about briefly. 
and almost always associated with symptoms. So in the first few patients, we weren't asking about that. Then we actually made sure we documented the symptoms. You know, when they stood up, we asked. So this is basically a one minute stand test. And it's tough to diagnose with a regular blood pressure cuff because you really need beat to beat blood pressure. So you need some way of some technology to actually directly measure blood pressure on that rapid basis. But that may be the most interesting thing that we found. And we we're hoping to sort of be able to write up some of that and publish some of that soon because most of the reports that we're seeing so far have used a more traditional autonomic battery with a tilt test. And this initial orthostatic hypotension, you don't tend to find on a tilt test. You actually have to stand someone up because it takes that muscle activation to find. And that actually, as I said, it's not everyone, but I think it's about 60%. Like the majority of patients, that's actually the most common finding uh, that we have. That's interesting because we hear a lot of uh, long COVID patients say that they pass their tilt test, but they yeah. still have all these symptoms. And that's multifactorial. Part of it, maybe we're doing the wrong test. Part of it is even pre-COVID, there, there are patients with orthostatic intolerance that don't meet the heart rate criteria for POTS. Yeah. That's part of the reason why in 2020, we published a Canadian Cardiovascular Society position statement on postural tachycardia syndrome. And originally it was just going to be on POTS, but then we actually ended up developing an ecosystem of orthostatic intolerance. So we described these other disorders to try and acknowledge that there are patients with something that we ended up calling postural symptoms without tachycardia, right? So they have symptoms that sound like they have POTS, but their heart rate doesn't go up excessively. And I think it's important not to label them with POTS because it's not, but also that obviously treatments targeting the excessive tachycardia don't make a lot of sense. And approaches that work for one may not work for the other. That's why we sort of created these different labels to try and put people in the right bins in the hopes that by using features that may be important, that may be the first step to helping to find out what's going on in this group versus that group, as opposed to trying to put everyone in the same bin and saying what's going on. And that's really difficult because there may be 30 things going on, right? If you take all of long COVID and say, what's the problem? I think the problem is that there, there isn't one problem. There's probably a bunch of problems. things that really stood out for me is this blood volume which I really hadn't contemplated before we talk a lot about heart rate we talked about blood pressure and I hadn't really contemplated the blood volume and the impact of the blood volume something that I'm just going to do a lot more research into the most interesting thing for me out of this interview was he mentioned another condition that wasn't POTS which I think I have and I'm surprised because I thought I had POTS so we learn something new every time we do these interviews I think I now have orthostatic hypertension, which is basically my heart rate going up, not sustaining at a high rate and then coming down quite quickly. Yeah. My heart rate will go really high and then within 30 seconds it's back down. But it does do what he described as inappropriate things, doesn't it? Um, Yeah. That whole description that he gave of how those are issues that you have. It's just you can't categorize it necessarily as POTS. It's a different condition. Yeah. But the suggestion is, though, that there are things that we could do to help it. I'm sure we'll do another POTS interview. Yeah, I'm just lining something up for for us to do a little bit more on POTS, because I think it's a really interesting area. And especially when you talk to these people about this multi-systemic situation that they deal with in, in POTS. And I think the sort of application of that onto long COVID is fascinating. Just goes to show what a good physician Dr. Rogers, his knowledge of all the other things that affect 
pots. It was huge. It was vast. He talked about MCAS. He talked about GI issues. He talked yep. about hypermobility. All these things that we've come across. You need people who have a wide perspective on what's going on to be able to find an answer down the road. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.